I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and this is Great Lakes Lore. Hello, Samantha. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? I am um I am okay. <laughs> we are both I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, we're we're both okay. <laughs> some things could be better. Some things are <laughs> going swimmingly. Um <laughs> I guess. I oh, that's good. Yeah. I, I only have one major issue going bad in my life right now. So that's that's good. And it's not even that bad. So it's 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 my knee. My knee hurts like an old man. So mm. um but I'm I've made it to my forties without needing physical therapy and that ends tomorrow or day after tomorrow. So uh. well I yeah. have I was talking to my intern today who is in her early twenties, twenty two. And I said, do I look like an adult? Because <laughs> I don't feel like an adult. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what did this person who needs a letter of recommendation from you say? No, she said, you look appropriately like an adult. I said, I look like somebody worthy of respect. And she said, oh, yeah, like if I were to see you walking around my college campus, I would think that you are an adult and that you are somebody who is worthy of respect. And I said, well, that's good because I just don't feel like one. (laughs) (laughs) I think we as humans, though, like. We have not, not like I like think I'm super young. Like obviously, I can I can see the gray hairs and I can see the wrinkles on my face and all of these things, but um, <laughs> but like you just wonder like when you're standing in a crowd of people like do I and maybe it's because I'm like in my mid thirties that I'm just kind of like how how am I perceived by people like because I'm not like a newbie professional anymore and I'm not old <laughs> so like what am i <laughs> it's 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 very it's very much a, a mid-30s thing i i felt i felt the same way um it was one of the things like like i'm not new um i'm not old enough seasoned to be, i'm not old enough to be mid-career you know I, right. i'm not i'm not at, at that age. i am now but you know in my in my mid-30s i i'm not maybe not quite mid probably um but but yeah i, I remember that feeling and, and the other thing is i mean apart from little aging aches and pains and and you know things hurting when you wake up and and things like that sometimes um i think it's weird that i don't think anybody ever told me that when you're in your 40s you're you're kind of gonna not in some ways not really feel any different sort of mentally than you did when you were in high school there's a lot of things i'm like (laughs) i don't feel like i've changed in in some ways yeah i mean i feel that way now or like but also then i just assume like if i were to run into a group of people from high school i'm like oh i don't know that they would recognize me it's like samantha you look you look like you they would know who i i don't know i would they i don't know (laughs) i've I've been i've been explicitly told on several occasions i look nothing like i did in high school so oh um yeah so that's depressing but um <laughs> still at least i at least i know i can i can go to my hometown and and, and blend in blend in and, and sort of go unobserved <laughs> um yeah so i think to sum up we're doing okay um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
bit of a, bit of a rabbit hole. <laughs> Some of us are having our, our, our one, like not our quarter or our mid, but our third life crisis. Third, not as in third. this is the third life crisis I'm having, but I'm in my third life crisis and you have to go to physical therapy. So I, uh, we're I am, okay. I am, I am in about my third life crisis in a sequence. <laughs> well, of, I'm in uh, my second. So. Second. Excellent. Nice. Um, it, uh, it, 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 it'll happen to you folks. So, Today, speaking of crises, <laughs> speaking of crises, yes. What is the crisis we're dealing with today? Um, we are going to talk about demonic possession today. Um, I, I think I said that very too excitedly. Um, we shouldn't be excited that people are possessed by the devil, but no, pro- I no probably not. Enjoy no. the topic of demonic possession. <laughs> um, I think we promised y'all ghosts during our last episode, but we thought demons were close enough. <laughs> I don't. Know, I can't remember if we actually said ghost or we said we did. something. No, we something. said. Oh, we did. We okay. said ghost. I, I was, we specifically. I was, said I was ghost. kind of hoping we said something spooky, but no, <laughs> we uh, we narrowed it down. Never, never, never believe us. Um, <laughs> we we you know we might come up with a topic, but then we get excited about something else, and so we we tend to go with what we get excited about. Actually, I was sitting at my computer and thought, "Hark! I wonder if there are any." Uh, exorcisms in the Great Lakes region, and I found one. (laughs) So before we dive into the case of, we're going to be referring to her as Anna Eklund, and you will understand why that requires that qualifier later. (laughs) But before we got things started, we wanted to actually talk about demonic possession and and, and the rites of exorcism, because we thought it'd be important to get that background information out of the way before we dive into this case. You can see how some of these things align or don't with what we're talking about. So um, I'm going to start off by giving kind of a history of and definition of demonic possession. And, you know, a lot of people look to the Bible um, to find these instances of possession. But it should be noted that most religious traditions have belief systems that involve possession um, by demons or evil spirits, and that these ideas date back to ancient cultures, you know, long before Jesus was alive. <laughs> um, and so these are these are cases that are common across human human cultures. But one of the most famous stories from the Bible um, about demonic possession is the story of um, Jesus casting the demons out of a man who exhibited incredible strength. No, nothing could hold him, bind him anymore. And Jesus asks, who is possessing the man? And he replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. And um, he then casts the demons out of the man and into a herd of pigs who then run into the lake and around themselves. So um, that's the image that's always stuck with me anyways when we're talking about these old stories. Um, there, there are a few others. But these stories definitely serve as the basis for beliefs that actual demons, intelligent evil forces, operated in the world. And Jesus and therefore other trained Christians eventually, as we will see, had the power to expel those demons. Then between the 15th and 16th centuries, there was an increased concern in the workings of demons in the world. Similarly, you know, we get um, a lot of focus on witches and witchcraft at this time. So there's clearly this um, this heightened awareness of the evil entities and things causing problems or maybe people just trying to maintain power. Um, just, just throwing that out there. Um, it's all but, a big stew. Yeah. <laughs> little yes. of all of it. Yeah. Um, 
And once we make it through this period, though, we get to the Enlightenment. And because of the Enlightenment's focus on reason and rational thinking and kind of looking at the natural world as opposed to the supernatural world, these these Enlightenment thinkers really call into question a lot of these um, superstitions and beliefs. There's sort of an ebb and flow of demons are real, demons aren't real. And um, Aaron's, I think, going to get into a little bit of that with how some of these rites of exorcism change. But if we jump way forward um, into the 21st century, just recently, well, recently being four years ago, (laughs) again, that age (laughs) thing creeps up on you. You forget that 2018 (laughs) was, in fact, four years ago. Um, But in April of that year, Pope Francis actually said that Satan was real that, quote, we should not think of the devil as a myth, a representation, a symbol, a figure of speech or an idea, but rather as a personal being who assails us. So we generally associate the formal exorcism that we recognize today that we see like in movies (laughs) and read about in books. Um, We associate that with Catholicism. And so throughout this um, episode, if we say things about the church or anything like that, um, we're generally going to be talking about the Catholic church. Um, And and so that's important to keep in mind. But there are other Christian denominations that um, do their own versions of exorcisms, um, one of the most notable being the Pentecostals. And they don't call them exorcisms. They refer to them as a deliverance a practice of deliverance in which they drive evil spirits and demons out of individuals. Yeah. um, And I I come from a a Lutheran tradition and I've talked to a friend of mine who's a pastor and a friend of mine who's in the seminary. And I asked him yesterday, have you had a class on exorcism? He's like, no. (laughs) Yeah. But but everybody I've talked to knows somebody who's been involved, but it's it's very, very rare. Um, It's as because as Sam is going to explain, there there's some you know, guidelines for, you know, you don't just sort of say, I've got a demon. Okay. You know, come in at two. Um, well, yeah, and I th- there, there's some think in some so. ways, I mean, it also, like, as we were doing this research, I think it makes sense that the Catholic church, as opposed to um, the other reformed traditions, the Protestant traditions, um, don't necessarily have that much of a focus because like, I mean, if you look at a lot, I mean, ideas of transubstantiation and all of that kind of stuff, like, the Catholic Church is far more mad, not mad, mad we'll say magical, mystical. Uh, we also wanted to know just what's going to happen if, if you know, somebody asks for an exorcism. So, you know, now that we've established that, especially the Catholic Church believes that there are demons, um, you know, actively bothering us in the world and can um, possess us what what is it that then happens um because we always see kind of laid out in the movies you know there's there's the ask of the local priest and things happen but they always kind of gloss over a lot of this i think so if someone approaches the catholic church asking for an exorcism they must first undergo physical and psychiatric evaluations um they're obviously looking for any type of mental illness or um physical problem epilepsy you know something like that that could be causing some of these things that appear to be demonic possession. And if they make it through that stage, they are referred to an exorcist who begins the discernment process. And the exorcist is looking for a few different things. Does the person have facility and language the individual has never learned? So if possessed Sam... Never, Sam never knew Greek, and all of a sudden she's speaking in Greek. That's that's a problem. <laughs> <It's a clue. laughs> 
abnormal physical strength, access to secret knowledge. And I always like the way that they word this, <laughs> access to secret yes. knowledge. Um, Just sounds good. It does. It does. So, you know, there are always the scenes in the movies, especially where, you know, the 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 possessed one knows the past and the histories of these priests who are exercising them or knows things about the world that they shouldn't know. And the other one is a vehement aversion to God and sacred objects like the crucifix or holy water. I mean, yeah, that's cross burning on the body. They cannot say their prayers, you know, things things like that that we see. And so if any of these are met, and of course it's up to the exorcist kind of evaluation, then the individual will move on to the rite of exorcism, which Aaron is now going to explain. The the rite of exorcism, um, R-I-T-E, right, um, as in ritual of exorcism, used in this case would have been the Rituale Romanum, which was developed in 1614 as part of the Council of Trent. And I am not going to go into detail on the Council of Trent, uh, just that it was part of a broad, massive reform of the church in response to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so almost every aspect of Catholic liturgy was overhauled, including the rite of exorcism. So it was part of a, a much bigger process of, of the church. And this was in 1614, and this ritual was in use until 1999. So this lasted a long time. And according to Francis Young in his book, A History of Exorcism in Catholic Christianity, the Rituale Romanum represented a balance between a, a very strict liturgy that is entirely laid out and designed to be followed word for word and the other extreme of just letting the exercising priest sort of say whatever he thought was good to say at the time because you had people doing both things. Uh, you had people advocating for, no, no, there's only one way you should do this and it's this way and other people saying, you can't tell me what to do. Who made you Pope? You know, that sort of thing. And because as Sam said, there was a huge uptick in exorcisms and this kind of activity during the 14 and 1500s. And so there had been, in the eyes of some in the church, some abuses of things. And so this new ritual is a way to sort of curb that. The ritual was accompanied by much more strict guidelines for when exorcism was appropriate and determining when a person might be possessed, as Sam mentioned, those sort of guidelines, uh, those came about as part of uh, as, as part of these reforms. But at the same time, while they have these, you know, we're going to make sure you're not, you know, sick or something uh, guidelines, they also believed that demon possession could mimic symptoms of disease. So are you sick or are you just being made to appear sick by the demon as a way for the demon to disguise their presence? So there's no perfect system for diagnosing possession. Now, the, the ritual itself was ideally to take place in a church uh, immediately following the mass. And if it was a woman that was being exercised, there should be witnesses to ensure that the priest did not take advantage of the woman in any way. And Young points out that while this is a sort of well-intentioned guideline, it sort of had the effect of turning exorcisms of women into spectator sports. And the rite itself consisted of prayers and readings from the gospels, particularly stories in which Jesus drives out demons. Uh, psalms, there's a list of psalms that are, that are sort of specified, uh, the apostles and Athanasian creeds also. There's many options for different prayers and readings that could be used at the discretion of the priest. But while there's flexibility 
the priest was instructed to only engage in conversation with the demon to determine its name. You're not supposed to to carry on a conversation. You're not supposed to engage. You're you're supposed to to drive it out. And finding out the demon's name is always a very important part of all of the books or movies. <laughs> you have to find its yes. name out in order to drive it out. Is what I what yes. pop culture has led me to believe. <laughs> yeah. And um and and there's there's the the model for that in in the Bible with Jesus yeah. asking, you know, right. the name of the demon. Um so so yeah, it, it's and it's sort of given mystical significance. If you know its name, you right. have power over it or something like that. So interestingly, and I, I well, I thought it was interesting. Although this ritual was used until 1999, it never got a vernacular language version like every other part of the Catholic liturgy. So this part is was still in Latin. Everything else about the mass would, was in whatever language was the local language. But I guess exorcisms should only be in Latin. Maybe it's like the power in the history and the language and, you know, I mean, I think one of the coolest things about a uh, like a, a Catholic mass or something is like how very steeped in tradition it is. And yeah. so like if you're you're calling on the old powers or something. <laughs> and that, yeah. And and that I mean, yeah, ritual language yeah. is, you know, the, the, the language is, is significant, but also I, I would just was was thinking about the the guidelines you, you read above if the priest is speaking in latin and yeah. the demon responds back understanding yeah, the latin that's, that's part of you it know too. that's yeah. you know so if, if you're just saying get out demon Yo, in bro. english and the demon's like <laughs> no and demon says no you know it's like but if, but if they know the latin yeah that's another one of those, another one of those i'm also clues. just imagining like modern a modernized language of exorcism what that would be like <laughs> Like like making it like really silly. <laughs> the 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 Christian rock version yes. of what exorcism yes. literally would be. Yeah. In which case it would be awful. Um, okay, so now let's get to the actual exorcism case that we are going to be talking about um, from the Great Lakes region today. So the woman who underwent the exorcism that we'll be talking about is not named in most of the sources for her privacy, which is very understandable. Um, at one point she is called Mary. Um, most of the time, she's not really called anything at all, just referred to as the woman or the possessed or things like that. Um, but she was born Emma Schmidt and at some point acquired the pseudonym of Anna Eklund. For the sake of consistency and clarity, we will be referring to her as Anna throughout the show. Um, and if you Google Anna Eklund, you know, you'll you'll find all of the stuff about this case that way. So that's why we're going with that one. Anna was born in 1882 and raised in Marathon, Wisconsin. There is a little bit of controversy over which Emma Schmidt this is. There are a couple of ones, but you know, we're going with the Ann with the Emma that was born in 1882, and we'll be calling her Anna. So this isn't confusing at all. So there are two key accounts um, of this exorcism that we're going to be looking at. The first was published in 1934 and is called The Earling Possession Case, an exposition of the the exorcism of Mary, a demoniac, and certain marvelous revelations for telling the near advent of Antichrist and the coming persecution of the church in the years 1952 to 1955. And this was written in 1934 by Reverend F.J. Bunce. The second source and the much more popular and available one was called Begone Satan! Exclamation <laughs> point. It's important <laughs> to get that in there. Mm -hmm. um, a soul-stirring account of diabolical possession in Iowa which was published in 1935 by Father Carl Vogel and translated by Celestine Kapsner. 
So first we will look at Begone Satan, and it begins with some general discussion of exorcism, just like we did, uh, emphasizing that the decline of church going, a dismissal of the reality of the supernatural, even among Catholics, and the increasing popularity of Protestant denominations that de-emphasize the sacraments have led to an increase in demonic activity. So basically, there's a lack of faith, <laughs> and that is causing, you know, that, that, that is causing the demons to enter our world, and that is why we are susceptible to them. We begin the action with Father Theophilus Reisinger, and he is talking to his friend, Father Joseph Steiger of Earling, Iowa, asking to bring a woman, uh, which is, of course, Anna. Um, he believes to be possessed by the devil to a local Franciscan convent to be exercised. After some discussion, it's all arranged and permission is obtained from church authorities. We then learn that Anna had been a very pious and respectable person, and throughout her youth, she led a religious, fervent, and blameless life. So she was a good kid. But when she turned 14, she was prevented from going to church or pray by some interior hidden power. Mm. The situation got worse, and she was conscious of sinister inner voices that kept on suggesting most disagreeable things to her. These voices tried their utmost to arouse thoughts of the most shameful type within her and tried to induce her to do things unmentionable. Um, Anna was worried she was losing her mind. She was examined by numerous doctors, but they all concluded that she was normal in the fullest sense. She sought help from the church, but it was a long process because of the reserved and skeptical attitude towards exorcism, which we've discussed already. Um, eventually, however, religious leaders came to the conclusion that she was under demonic influence. She understood Latin despite never knowing it, which is one of those items on that um, discernment list. Uh, she foamed at the mouth when a priest blessed her, which obviously would be another one there. Uh, she could sense when holy water had been sprinkled on objects and responded responded with rage. By the time priests reached the conclusion that she was in fact possessed and the exorcism was the route to go, Anna was 40 years old. So this the troubles began when she was 14 and now she's 40. So it takes decades. <laughs> and it seems like it takes decades for this pamphlet to get to the actual exorcism. It, it it's, <laughs> a, it's a it's a long it, it's it's the longest 34 pages I've I've read in a long time. <laughs> so Anna is taken into the convent, placed on a bed, and held down by the strongest nuns they have. And as the prayers began, she lost consciousness. But when Father Theophilus begins praying, um, begins like the actual exorcism rite, things begin to get weird. With lightning speed, the possessed dislodged herself from her bed and from the hands of her guards, and her body, carried through the air, landed high above the door of the room and clung to the wall with a tenacious grip. So she flies off the bed, She's pinned up against the wall, like in an exorcism movie. Yes. <laughs> Those present pull her back down, but real force, that's the, the phrase that was, was uh, in, in the thing, real force had to be used. She was back on the bed, tied down more securely, and Father Theophilus continued. And then shrill, harsh screaming fills the air, and people outside the building can hear it, and people working in the fields can hear it. And this was supposed to be an isolated place where not a lot of people would know what was going on, just sort of the, the inner circle. But pretty soon, everybody knows what's happening, despite all the attempts to keep it secret. So Anna was undergoing physical torment as well. 
the physical condition of the possessed presented such a gruesome sight because of the distorted members of her body that it was unbearable. The nuns helping in the room had to leave the room sometimes because they were sickened by the sight of her body and her limbs contorting. And then Father Theophilus begins a dialogue with the spirits inhabiting her. And the one who seems to be running things is Beelzebub, who common demon name, who explains that he entered her because her father cursed her. And then we find out that her father's you know, damned spirit is one of the demons possessing her as well. So she's possessed by the spirit of her dead father who went to hell. Uh, she's also inhabited by Judas Iscariot, who, by the way, gets really irritated when you bring up the whole <laughs> betraying Christ thing. Um, the, the the priest brings it up and and the, the Judas demon goes a little goes a little nuts. The Judas demon also causes a disgusting exhibition of spitting and vomiting as if Judas were intending to spit at his lord and master with all his might or as if he had in mind to unloose his inner waste and filth upon him and in another part point in the uh in, in the account they they describe the amount of vomit coming out of the woman as as being literally more than seems like it would be able to fit inside a human so it's just vast amounts of vomit the demons are asked what what their what their point is why they're doing this what their their goal is and their goal is to torment anna until she commits suicide we then get to a conversation between Father Theophilus and Jacob, her father, so the, the spirit. And what do we learn about Jacob? He had led a frightfully coarse and brutal life, a passionately unchaste and debased life. He now admitted that he had repeatedly tried to force his own daughter to commit incest with him, but she had firmly resisted him. Therefore, he had cursed her and wished inhumanly that the devils would enter into her and entice her to commit every possible sin against chastity, thereby ruining her body and soul. We're then joined by the spirit of a woman named Mina, who had had an affair with Jacob and had murdered three, no, actually four, of her children. So these conversations would be interrupted by periods where Anna was physically tormented by the demons that filled her. The woman's face became so distorted that no one could recognize her features. Then, too, her whole body became so horribly disfigured that the regular contour of her body vanished, her pale, death-like, and emaciated head, often assuming the size of an inverted water pitcher, became as red as glowing embers. Her eyes protruded out of their sockets, her lips swelled up to proportions equaling the size of her hands, and her thin, emaciated body was bloated to such enormous size that the pastor and some of the sisters drew back out of fright, thinking that the woman would be torn to pieces and burst asunder. At times, her abdominal region and extremities became as hard as iron and stone. In such instances, the weight of her body pressed into the iron bedstead so that the iron rods of the bed bent to the floor. Yikes. That is quite the description. <laughs> it is. Uh, the, the head, uh, assuming the size of an inverted water pitcher. How big is it? About the size of a water pitcher. I, I don't it, know. It seems like That's an weird, odd unit of yeah. measure. But yeah. but her head, you know, be glowing as yeah. embers. Um, yeah. We also get lots of dialogue between Father Theophilus and the demons, far more than the Rituale Romanum would like priests to engage in. Uh, the demons mock the priest's occasional mispronunciations of Latin terms, question his theological knowledge, and generally are, well, they're, they're demons, they're jerks, they're, they're buttholes. I don't want to meet one. Seems, seems unpleasant. No, I mean, 
Unless they were like David Tennant. And I don't think they are. No, no, I don't. No. I don't either. I think they're like the other gross demons. Yeah. That come after David Tennant. I, I, th- I think I think David Tennant uh, is. He's not, the exception. Or the, he, the, the character he plays is the exception. I we're not <laughs> saying David Tennant himself is a demon. No, I'm. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. I've, watch Good Omens. Go, good Omens. Yeah. I mean, Ooh, read the book too, but yes, also new, watch the new, new season is coming. Soon. Is it coming? I, I think. I, oh, I knew they I, were making one, yeah, but I don't know when it was so. supposed to be out. Well, with with COVID, who knows when anything's coming out anymore? Because uh-huh. like the schedules are all. Yeah, everything place, got but, derailed. But go read and watch Good Omens. Absolutely. It's so good. So good. You never knew that the apocalypse could be so funny. I love that book. Uh, I remember I remember hiding it behind my literature book in high school, trying not to laugh. Uh, was it was the first it. audiobook that I ever listened to. And oh, really? the narrator was incredible. And I was like driving, just just laughing. It was so good. It was oh, this is such a good book. All right. Oh, back to back to the real demons, who are, who are much much less uh, much less amusing. Eventually, after several sessions from September through the end of December 1928, the demons are driven out. At the end of the pamphlet, we learn a little bit more about Anna, but it seemingly contradicts some of what comes at the beginning. So, at the end, they say that Anna was born in 1882 and first possessed in 1908 by a spell cast on her by her aunt Mina, who was a witch, and the woman who was having the affair with Anna's father. So that's the Mina who killed the children and, and, and things just throwing like that. out that witch accusation there. In, yes. In the 19, 1920. She, she, um, yep. Claimed uh, she, she was thought to be a witch, but 1908 would make Anna 26 when that first began happening, not the 14 years old. She was supposed to be when this started. So, that seems like a contradiction. But what we also learn is that Father Theophilus first exercised her in 1912, after which time she was okay until her father cursed her and which re-demonized her. And I, I should say there's a whole lot we know about uh, about Father Theophilus that that would just be more than we need to go into. Mm-hmm. But he was um, he, he was well known as an exorcist in Wisconsin. He was a you know, prominent exorcist in Wisconsin. Church leadership thought he did a few too many exorcisms. They thought he was a little going overboard with it's some of these things. It's always how it things. goes in the movies too. It is like he's a he's a he's a you know the, the, the renegade priest who, <laughs> you know, doesn't he doesn't play by the rules. But um, he was he was a prominent uh, prominent um, exorcist. It was brought up in his uh, his obituary when he died in I think 1940. So he was connected with her for more than just this series of exorcisms but we don't learn that until the end of the pamphlet which seems kind of uh, kind of odd so this this pamphlet was um was printed in in 1935 at that time it said she was she was doing fine and she was talking about how everybody needed to um you know, become catholic it was popular in its first year tens of thousands of copies were printed and distributed in catholic churches and schools it was condensed and published in uh, in two magazines, the Religious Bulletin of the University of Notre Dame and the Catholic Register of Denver, and combined, those went out to about 300,000 readers. It was adapted into an article for Time Magazine in 1936 and retold in Fate Magazine in 1959. Um, I picked up that copy of Fate off of uh, off of eBay and uh, and read it, and it, it, it follows the Begone Satan account very, very closely. Um, 
but this story just keeps getting told and retold. By 1974, it was in its fourth printing of 45,000 copies, and currently you can read it on the website of EWTN, the Roman Catholic cable channel. So it's it's been constantly in print and available since it was since it was first published. So this becomes a very popular conception of what uh, what exorcisms can be like. Now, while William Peter Blatty used the case of Roland Doe for his novel, The Exorcist, and which had the famous movie made from it, uh, he also read Begone Satan as part of his background research for the book, which makes sense because it was one of the most well-documented exorcisms in American history. And Blatty said later, I instinctively felt it could not have been invented But he also said that the tone of the pamphlet seemed so overly credulous, so replete with pietistic asides and exclamations that it turned me off. This Catholic pamphlet about Catholics exercising a Catholic was a little too Catholic for him. (laughs) But like we said, this isn't the only account that was out there. At the time, it did appear in the newspapers, but the newspaper accounts that we found were not nearly as detailed as these pamphlets. Uh, The earliest one I found was about a month after the exorcism was done, and it treated it mostly as a joke. Um, it, it, It sort of made some little snarky comments about it and said, what a quaint old world tradition is surviving here in the Midwest. So those accounts weren't um, weren't really as detailed as, as what we want. But after the break, we're going to get to another account that is a little different and a little strange. Next time on Great Lakes Lore, we will be talking about a cryptid. Yet to be determined. Which cryptid? We don't know yet. We've we've got uh, we've got some options. We just have to figure out. We we always uh, when we're looking for a topic, uh, what can we most easily find the most about <laughs> as quick so... as quickly as possible. <laughs> you can follow Great Lakes Lore at uh, Great Lakes Lore on Twitter and Instagram, and you can search for the Great Lakes Lore podcast on Facebook, and you can go to our website greatlakeslore.com for more extensive show notes and links and, and bibliographical information and photos than, uh, than you get in your podcast app. You can listen to past episodes there or in your favorite podcast app. And uh, generally, those are places you can find us. You can also drop us an email at greatlakeslorepodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon. Um, if you are interested in supporting the show, um, you can go to patreon.com slash Chizomedia. Uh, it is a Patreon that supports both um, Great Lakes Lore as well as Aaron's other podcast, The Saucer Life. And we have a couple of different tier options, which will provide you with a variety of bonus materials, early access to um, to all of the shows. We do a post-recording wrap-up video for every show, research blog posts, and a bonus episode um, for each of the shows every month. So if you like what you hear and you would like to hear more of it or um, just support our efforts here, um, your monies help us, you know, Get subscriptions to things. And buy buy issues of Fate magazine from 1959 with articles about exorcisms. Yeah, it. Aaron buys the stuff for the show and then he's like, hey, I bought this. 
and I've bought stuff that you've told me to buy too. So I don't ask for much. You can go I'm ahead and simple ask. Person. Go, ahead and, go ahead and ask. Um, anyways, you can check us out there. We appreciate all the support we've received already, and um, you know the the love that we feel from from our patrons is um, it it helps us to keep going. We like yes. it. So yes. So check that out if you are interested. So, have you finished Stranger Things yet? I have not. I'm sorry. <gasps> what These the episodes, hell? They're so long. The you started are rewatching so long. Gettysburg, but you didn't finish watching Stranger Things. I, I, I don't. You know, know what happens in Gettysburg, man? Maybe this time, Pickus Charge works. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I, I am. Um, I'm a. I'm just about to the end of the individual episodes before the last movie length or even longer movie length for, you, you, you're almost done with, with four part first, one with season four part one yeah yes almost done with that yeah. it's like when i talk about the last two harry potter movies it's book seven part one and book seven part two or point one and point two i, I just think they need to make these things shorter because i my, my <laughs> but it's my, so good it is, uh, it is it is good i'm really enjoying it so i i shared something on facebook today no last night i don't remember the Things bleed together when you're in your mid thirties too. <laughs> um, but How do you think uh, I feel? <laughs> about about uh, something about my favorite character from from that um, fr- from from the new season, and a friend of mine sent me a Facebook message, and, and we were conversing. And Aaron, I think I'm going to read some Stranger Things fan fiction. <laughs> like here in the show. No, God, no, no. <laughs> I know, I know the kind of fan fiction that's out there on the internet. I'm, <laughs> I'm not completely unhip, but um, no, fan fiction's fun. It is fun, and and I, you know, my friend and I were just talking that there is just something that really should have happened in in this season that didn't happen, and the fan fiction world is correcting that wrong, and that's all I'll say about it because. I'm not going to spoil anything. So, I'm a big fan of the people wresting control of the narrative back from the corporations that own <laughs> the material. Um, Once the characters come out, we own the characters. Yeah, the yeah, characters th- belong to the people. I'm, I'm, I'm sure the courts would agree. <laughs> well, let's get back to the show and actually stop weirding people out with our fan fiction conversation. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to talk about the second pamphlet, though the first pamphlet that was that came out chronologically, and we're just going to refer to it as the Earling Possession Case because the title is far it's, too long to regularly a, repeat. Title's a paragraph. <laughs> uh, even though this telling of the story appeared a year before Begone Satan, it did not receive official approval from the church and its circulation was limited. Joseph Laycock, a religious studies scholar, in his article, The Secret History of the Earling Exorcism, says that the Earling Possession Case, the the pamphlet reveals that the exorcisms never actually ended. Anna became possessed again almost immediately and was still being exorcised when the second account, Begone Satan, was written. Furthermore, she was being visited by Jesus, Mary, the Archangel Michael, and other heavenly personages, as well as by demons. 
Reisinger used her ecstasies to question these beings about various doctrinal matters and eventually constructed a complex eschatological plot in which Jesus would return in 1955 and in which the events in Erling played a role in the final war between heaven and hell. While the book does address the several exorcisms she went through, it also focused on apocalyptic prophecy. Good spirits, heavenly visitors, arrive and take possession of Anna sometime in 1930. At this point, Anna made a transition from being a victim of possession to being a prophet, working in tandem with Reisinger. So they're together promoting these these positive visions that she is seeing. It's very interesting. Yeah. In 1931, God said, all the revelations which I have made to you are to be given to my servant, your confessor, that he may prepare the world, not only that he himself may know them, but that he may prepare the world. These preparations are for 1955 when Christ will return and everyone on earth will become Catholic. Interestingly, the good spirits spoke German while the demons spoke English, and some of the conversations that Reisinger was having with Anna were done in person, but some of them were actually um, written letters. Um, Reisinger was writing letters to her asking questions of the spirits, and Anna was replying. Which is just fascinating. Well, yeah, I mean, you've moved out of there being exorcism stuff. This is like prophet of the Lord, person standing on the street corner with a cardboard sign type situation. It's not surprising why the church is like, yeah, we're, no, yeah, no, nobody should. Well, and like, I mean, I, I guess I can get, so say all of, say all of this is real. And, um, you know, Reisinger has been with Anna many times, seeing these things happen and trusts her that so, so much that when he's writing to her, he believes that mm-hmm. she truly is saying that back. But I mean, I, I, well, first of all, you can't prove any of this kind of stuff anyways. Right, right. <laughs> um, but you really like there are. Yeah, the the letter writing just removes everything so much because I think so much of like believing that an exorcism is taking place is like seeing everything that's happening. And again, this isn't an exorcism anymore, but you're just losing the eyewitness like element of it, which is, I think, so important in the other part. Yeah. She'd be like, oh, well, I've got my cup of coffee. Time to write that letter from the Virgin Mary to uh, to Reisinger again. Archangel Michael said that (laughs) in 1955, (laughs) the Methodists were all going to vanish. And you also have to wonder like, you know, other than just recognition from Rice, you know, there's got to be something going on for Anna to keep this charade. Well, it's not necessarily a charade. There must be something going on for Anna to keep something like this up, though, to continue to. Money like I don't know. That's that's a good question. There, there's the, the what, I'm not sure what the motivation is. Because in this case, it's not like it's somebody who's like being put in front. Like, it's not fame that she's getting from this because, you know, her identity is kept secret and, you know, all these different things. So, And we're not even sure how, I mean, apart from this one pamphlet that is almost impossible to find nowadays. Yeah. How are these? Who are these messages going to? And how are they getting out? How is this this being promulgated? There's there's a lot. Well, yeah, because we don't find this in the other recountings no, of no, of this. So, 
So the pair, um, Anna and Reisinger, saw themselves as prophets, but also as active participants in defeating evil. Jesus told Anna in 1930, I rejoice, my daughter, that you persevere so bravely and are the instrument by means of which great honor is done to me and great help given to the Catholic Church. In this exorcism, 10 million devils have already been cast into hell. The Archangel Michael, on the other hand, reports the number of devils cast into the abyss as being in the billions. Finally, in the pamphlet, it's written that because of the exorcisms that took place in Erling, a number of bad events were prevented, and Satan, of course, was not happy. A few of these included a revolution in Germany that was prevented. The Catholic Church escaped persecution in Italy and Spain. And a 1931 bombing plot against the Pope had failed. So these were just three of the things that happened or that were prevented that didn't happen, bad things that didn't happen because of this series of exorcisms. So these demons would have somehow been working in other ways in the world, but Anna and Theophilus cast them back into hell. Right. So her exorcisms were not just about her. She's her she she she's this this vital part of of saving the the church as a whole. It, it's a different sort of role for her. So now that you've heard all of the details of, well, all the details that we can find <laughs> of, of this exorcism case of, of Anna Eklund, we wanted to take this idea of exorcisms into the present. And um, so we're going to sort of shift a little bit and talk about some facts about exorcisms and then um, the way exorcisms are portrayed in pop culture before we wrap everything up at the end. So one of the things that's been occurring is that there's been an increase in requests for exorcisms. According to an article on The Conversation by Religious Studies Professor Joseph Laycock, the same Joseph Laycock who uh, who wrote about the two pamphlets, uh, exorcisms were incredibly rare in Western nations during the 20th century, and, and many Catholic authorities considered them to be an embarrassment. After The Exorcist came out in 1973, one Jesuit priest famously told Newsweek that he didn't believe demons existed. But today, as we get into the 21st century, the, the, the church has reversed its attitude. Back in 1991, church authorities allowed 2020, uh, ABC News Magazine show, to witness an exorcism. Although one priest questioned this on Nightline, asserting that the church was trying to advance a political agenda and get back to more traditional and gendered views on things. So still some debate within the church about the place of exorcism and demonology. And yeah, they like said that. they were trying to like assert old authorities and like everybody needs to stay in their lane. Women are this. The beliefs are this sort of this very traditionalist view of what the Catholic Church is. And and of course, exorcists go or exorcisms. Well, and exorcists sort of harken back to that very powerful church that can cast demons out of people. According to that 2018 article in The Atlantic, requests for exorcisms are on the rise. An official exorcist in Indianapolis said that in 2018, he had received 1,700 requests over the course of that year um, for exorcisms, which is a massive number. And in 2011, the United States had fewer than 15 known Catholic exorcists. And in 2018, accounts varied based on who the journalist asked, but the number was roughly 100 sort of officially designated exorcists. So quite a jump. 
Now, some point to the diminishing numbers of practicing Christians throughout the country and the overall secularization of society as the reason behind the increased belief in demons and requests for exorcisms. And that seems counterintuitive at first. But as people left organized religion, they began exploring spirituality on their own. Additionally, paranormal television, movies, podcasts, and social media all speak of demons and demonic entities. The idea has pervaded the popular mind. And the film, The Exorcist, according to one Catholic exorcist, confirmed something very deep in the popular imagination. It was very visceral, very irrational, beyond science, far buried underneath medicine and psychology. This huge fear that these things are real. And that's what, so like, I love exorcism movies. Like, I mean, the religious, I've mentioned many times, religious horror is like one of my favorites. Um, And I think it's that like, but what if, you know, I mean, these are such long standing stories. So like, but, but what if, what if that can happen and how do you prove it or disprove it? And so I can see how like that, I get it. Uh, and and one thing that uh, that sort of comes out in, in this in this development that, that sort of tracks with with changes in in popular culture is we move from demons getting a foothold into a person by being cursed by their aunt Mina who's sleeping with their dad by a witch or something like that to dabbling in the occult becomes the mm-hmm. gateway. Even the Roland Doe case um, that Blatty used, I think that took place in the forties. And yes. like the the story is that um, Roland was playing around with some stuff with his, with his aunt that maybe he shouldn't have. So like you know, sort of doing the Ouija board type mm-hmm. thing. And now and I can't I I didn't read through and refresh myself with all of all of the details of that case. Um, but but I and so I don't know if there are other ideas regarding that or not at this point. But as I was skimming through like this Atlantic article and a couple others, it did it did mention that. But you know, those who have taken a deep dive. In, into the case. I don't know if that's still sort of the the pervading idea or if it's kind of like, well, that was just kind of what people said. <laughs> I, I can't right. remember. <laughs> right. Because everybody's looking for a reason, right? Like, and, and that makes sense too, because like, if 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 we're good then and we don't play with Ouija boards and, and dabble in the occult, then the demons can't get us. <laughs> so it's kind of like, there needs to be a reason why this person was possessed. And I think even, you know, you know, if we remove this from people who follow uh, Christian-based religion or, or whatever, you know, there are so many stories about demons and evil spirits that are throughout all cultures that it's kind of like, well, but maybe there could be nefarious forces out there that have nothing to do with a particular religious doctrine. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is just how this group of people decides to explain it. And this is how this group of people decide to explain it. So in terms of psychology, exorcisms have undergone a lot of scrutiny for ignoring potential medical, often psychological problems, and mistaking those for demonic possession. Some possible explanations include schizophrenia, dissociative identity disorders, and psychosis. The exorcism of Annalisa Michelle in Germany in the 1970s, which resulted in her death due to malnutrition and dehydration, brought a lot of this under fire. Michelle underwent a total of 67 exorcism sessions, one or two per week, for 10 months in 1975 and 1976, and weighed only 66 pounds at her death. Her parents and priests were charged with negligent homicide, but the priests were only fined, and the parents, it was deemed, had suffered enough. 
Michelle had undergone a variety of treatments from the time she was 16 to manage epilepsy, psychosis, and her conditions not only remained the same, but worsened. By the time she was 21, her parents began to believe she was possessed and turned to the Catholic Church. So given the facts of that case, and given our better understanding of mental health and psychological disorders now, it's easy to see why it's important for meetings and, 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 and treatment by mental health professionals and, and other medical um, professionals are, are necessary and recommended before that discernment process begins. According to an interview with a priest featured in that Atlantic article, 80% of those who approached him about an exorcism were sexual abuse survivors. Suffering trauma can cause some dissociate disorders to take root, so it isn't surprising that something as traumatic as sexual abuse could cause the brain to try to explain what was going on in a different way. For many with mental health disorders seeking an exorcism, they would rather blame something on the outside as opposed to something inside them that's wrong. And a demon may be easier to stomach than schizophrenia or abuse from a loved one. All right, so now we wanted to turn um, and before wrapping everything up, kind of talk a bit about pulp culture, because I have mentioned exorcism movies several times <laughs> during um, during this conversation. Um, and so I thought we could talk about a couple of different things that we find in a lot of movies or TV shows about exorcism. Um, so there are some common tropes that we see. Um, and, oh, I should mention that Aaron and I both watched a movie that was based on <laughs> this case oh, yes. that was, I think, without a doubt, the actual worst garbage movie I've seen in my entire life. Like, I, I don't even think that there's a, I don't even need to think about that. I, I am confident that that was the worst movie I've seen in my entire life. You know, I was thinking about that because I've, as a, a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000, et cetera, I've seen some really bad movies. Um, but those movies are bad in a way that is sort of focused on mechanical things, the visuals, the yes, sound. Yes, I have seen Ed things. Wood movies, like yeah. actual Ed Wood movies, and they are better than what we watched. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This was, this was the most incompetently made movie I have ever seen, the most poorly acted and written movie I have ever seen, um, the most poorly paced <laughs> movie I have ever seen. I mentioned, as I was describing this to several people at work, I said, I feel like a 10th grader decided I would like to make an exorcism movie with my friends. And this was the script that they wrote. And it would be like, wow, this is actually decent for a 10th grader. But not something that became an actual film. <laughs> no, it's a it's a it's a British movie. It grossed at the box office forty five thousand dollars. Yeah, that's bad. A bunch of us could have gotten together and paid them not to release this movie. <laughs> they would have made more money. Uh, as we were watching it, though, um, you know, we were talking about some of the common tropes that we see because I have seen more exorcism movies than Aaron has. <laughs> I- I've seen The Exorcist. That's it. So. <laughs> Um, and so, and so one of them, and this comes up in that movie is, is the idea of the troubled priest. Um, so I believe in the Anna Eklund movie, he had, um, broken his, um, what is that word? Vow of, vow of chastity. Chast- yes. Yes. I was trying to think of some, there's another word I was trying to think of that I cannot think of. Um, anyways, he broke that vow. <laughs> and so we see the the troubled priest in a lot of things. Um, last fall, I watched the two seasons that exist of the Exorcist TV show that had come out. Um, I watched it on Hulu. It was actually quite good. I'm sad there were only two seasons. Um, but one of the main character priests was questioning his faith and his abilities. He'd been an exorcist and someone had died under his 
watch and um you know he was having trouble and the other one was you know also dealing with some romantic issues as well and of so course. it often is sex and faith that end up being the things that trouble the priest. But um, these individuals are then set up as being fallible to demonstrate then that humans, I, I think, in order to demonstrate, though, that humans are still able to overcome evil. I think that's kind of the message that you see in the movie, that despite these people are troubled and whatever, they're still able to to, to find that power with God and, um, you know, vanquish the demons. <laughs> and that actually, the troubled priest thing, it occurred to me when... I was looking through the outline earlier that it ties into something that came up in the Begone Satan pamphlet because it turns out we learn from this pamphlet, and I don't know if this is a real teaching of the church or if it's just something that came out in the pamphlet that got sort of carried on, is that demons know your sins, but they only know the sins you haven't confessed. And it's, I don't think that that's not how it's always portrayed in the movie, but it's just like the demon knows your backstory and that's why you're not supposed to talk right. to them very much. Like you cannot react to them. That's why in the movies, you know, there's not supposed to be a whole bunch of other people in the room as this is happening because then the demon can start to prey on right. somebody else right. um, because, you know, they're not going to be as well as virtuous to start with, but have sort of the clean conscience that then a priest would have because they've confessed, I suppose. So I guess that is part of it, but it's never said. It's never stated. So so one of the other things that we often see is sort of decay of the body. Um, so the the person who's possessed is often very moldy <laughs> and, yeah. and, and gnawed on looking kind of and their skin's all <laughs> gross and they become icky. Um, and um, so I, I think that's tied to this idea that, that the evil inside the body literally rots the outside flesh and we get ideas of impermanence of the physical and that the spiritual or the supernatural is what matters, um, but also ties in, I think, to ideas about defilement of the body and we can see this also in this idea of contortions and fits and so um when i think of this i always think of the movie the exorcism of emily rose which is based on the annalisa michelle case and that was the first one i saw with like i mean crazy bending joints at super weird angles and you get like the crunchy oh, noises as things yeah. <laughs> aaron's making really icky, icky uh, faces. <laughs> I'm freaked out. as i'm just like bending my elbow in kind of a normal way i'm like Oh, yeah, it's so gross when they do this, like claw hand. Um, <laughs> claw hand freaked me out, man. Um, but again, this idea that there is a thing inside of you that's using your body for something else, right? And causing it to do very unnatural things. A lot of times it's children and teens that are being possessed. Um, so in the Exorcist TV show, in the first episode, it starts off with a teenage daughter. In the Exorcist, it's a young girl, Emily Rose, um, who is supposed to be Annalisa Michelle, is, you know, like a college-aged girl. And I just finished reading the book, My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is also a teenage girl. So I think there are some ideas there about corrupted innocence, people still learning the difference between right and wrong. They're more easily influenced by, you know, the smooth talker, which you really see in that Exorcist TV show. I really highly recommend, especially the first season. And Gina Davis is in it. And what? Alan Buck. You didn't tell me Gina Davis was in it. I did. You were telling actually. me you, you did. Oh, did you did, then. and I was excited because I love Gina Davis, and I never, <laughs> I, I don't have Hulu, so yeah. um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know if it's still on. I hope it is. I've been thinking about rewatching it because it's really good. The guy who plays um, Father Marcus was was very good. Like he's a very good actor. I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, but again, so you know, young young folks who are susceptible. And I think I also made that. So like when we talk about like poltergeist activity and stuff, that's always centered around like children and teens and stuff who are going through all their hormones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Changes, you know, they're trying to figure the world out. And so this evil influence is easily, easily accepted. But this idea brings me to my last and my biggest idea, um, which I texted Aaron about, you know, like a week ago. And I was like, I'm going to talk about feminism. (laughs) 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 Um, Because in many of these movies, the one who is being possessed is female. Even when like the case um, that that the things were based on, like um, William Peter Blatty basing The Exorcist off of the case of Roland Doe that was a young boy and he turned it into a young girl. And as I sat and stewed about this at my desk at work, taking probably too much time stewing about this at work, um, I (laughs) put together some ideas. Um, So I think there are a lot of things hidden inside of this um, message that women are more corruptible. um, And when we look at sort of that biblical history, they'd already been corrupted in the garden, right? The serpent already Mm -hmm. got to them once. So we're just we're just ripe for the taking. Corrupted women will also then bring down men because then the possessed um, person in a lot of these films are, you know, trying to seduce the priest and do all of these other terrible things to bring the priest down with them. And so there's this upstanding man who is lured to his own spiritual demise. Um, I think we get the idea that the female body is a tool for evil, <laughs> which is which is not not a good message to be sending. No, not, not at really. at all. Um, and finally, that women need men in power, priests, to save them. Women can't save themselves, and other women cannot save them either because it has to be a priest. Um, and so then I just got really mad about all of this. <laughs> well, when, when you when you texted me this all of this um as we were talking about it i I think i i made the point that you know you you know women end up in movies getting possessed by the devil uh little boys end up being the antichrist and being the big bad guy right right? like in like in the omen so yeah and i'm just trying to think of an exorcism piece of pop culture ephemera where it was men being possessed is the the sort of main thing the second season of the exorcist it is a man who is possessed okay Okay. So, um, so Good. that did rectify it. That's yeah. the one thing that um, that I could think of. And now there could be other things out there that I have just not encountered. Um, but when you look at sort of the very mainstream movies and TV shows that have come out, it's generally females who are possessed. There's even the movie The Last Exorcist, and or is it The Last Exorcism? One of the two it came out in like 2011, 2015. I don't know, somewhere around there, the early 20 teens. Um, and and again, that is a female, and also tied again to ideas of um, sexual abuse. So um, we see that with Anna Eklund, and we see it here um, with with that Last Exorcist case, and um, the um, the evidence also you know, is there, which Aaron talked about during the psychology section. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's interesting the way that, that the pop culture has sort of taken certain things from these real cases, but then mm-hmm. 
it's interesting what they keep and what they don't. The body horror they keep, mm-hmm. um, and the the contortions and the the flying into the wall. Um, I I really think it's telling, just as we sort of sum up here, that the um, that the account of the Anna Eklund case that has her coming through this and becoming a prophetess mm-hmm. is not the one that gets movies made about it and i mean i i i get why but um well but it, it, but should have the other movies shouldn't have been made so i don't really know no that that's no good. I, I i yeah <laughs> I, I mean it, it's it, yeah so yeah the the anna eklund movie um i i, I can't recommend avoiding it enough yeah, um, I mean, I've watched a lot of bad horror movies. Like at Halloween time, I will watch kind of whatever's on Netflix once I get through like the good stuff that's on Netflix at that <laughs> time of year. It's like, okay, now it's time for the B stuff. And um, this was far worse than anything I've ever seen. It, it was it was bad. And and not in a good way. No, not in I a thought fun I was way. wasting my time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, but it now was I fun can to, tell you about it. So it was, yes, we we can we can tell the people and 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 sort of it was it was valuable to watch. We um because if we hadn't, somebody would say, "Did you watch the movie?" And we'd have to say no. But now we can say yes, and it was awful. But that one did end though with sort of the Anna being a tool for important religious things to come. Not quite the. Uh, not, yeah, not quite the yeah. second coming of Christ in the 1950s or anything like that, but, but um, a vaguely defined global reawakening. Yeah, vaguely defined sort of sums up the movie. Um, <laughs> it, it was, it was just so you know, it was nothing like the actual case. There, there was almost no. nothing about it that was like the actual case. Mm-hmm. This is they. I, I swear, somebody wrote a bad exorcism movie and then found a case that hadn't had a movie made after it to use that name. Something. I don't know. Anything else? No, I mean I think we um we've sort of analyzed the case. We've talked about exorcisms. We've talked about what exorcisms are up to in the in the modern times. Um and and sort of brought it all back to pop culture because I think that's where most of us experience exorcism. <laughs> um it's not like you can like sign up for a night of exorcism participation the same way that you can sign up to explore a haunted house at night or something like that so we have like these pop culture images of what an exorcism is and so what what happens in an actual case and there just happened to be a case that happened here in the great lakes region and um yeah we thought we would share that bring that story to you guys yeah and it was it was fun Mm -hmm. it was fun 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 and um, fun with satan Fun with Satan. That's no. We should put that as our subtitle. <laughs> all Beelzebub, all the time. All right. Thanks for listening. An Exorcism in Erling was written and produced by Samantha Engel and Aaron Gullius. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore.